our sponsor, the Open Society Foundations, an organization that works to build vibrant and inclusive societies whose governments are accountable and open to the participation of all people. Hi, welcome to another episode of Hashtag Tell Black Stories Podcast. I'm your host, Rashid Shabazz, Chief Marketing and Storytelling Officer at Color Change. The Hashtag Tell Black Stories Podcast was created as an extension of Color Change Hollywood, an initiative changing the rules in Hollywood, ensuring accurate, diverse, empathetic, and human portrayals of black people on television and throughout the media landscape. Today, I'd like to welcome a special guest, Sudanese political cartoonist, Khaled Elbey. Khaled considers himself a virtual revolutionist, publishing political cartoons in a variety of publications. Born in Romania, he often describes his home or where he's from as the internet. He is currently an artist in residence in Copenhagen, Denmark, as part of the International Cities of Refuge Network. He is also a Soros Arts Fellow. His work champions freedom of expression in the Arab world and beyond. Today, he is here to talk about the U.S. launch of his book, Cartoon, and to discuss his current projects and his push for Hashtag Blue for Sudan. Khalid, I am honored to have you here with us today for the Hashtag Tell Black Stories podcast. Thank you so much for joining us, and salam alaikum. Alaikum salam. Thank you very much for having me. I want to start with an exciting fact. You're our first international guest, <laughs> uh, as I shared with you. Amazing. This is also the first time we're filming here yeah. in, in this space without new studios. A so. lot of pressure. <laughs> I'm going to put a lot of pressure on you. <laughs> um, but uh, as our first guest in the studio, our first international guest, um, the Hashtag Tell Black Stories podcast, this is great for us because, as you know, the issues of racial justice, equality, and ending discrimination and oppression of black people and people of African descent crosses all borders and is not bound by any city, country, state, or nation. Absolutely. That said, I want to start with the earlier point I raised, uh, is that while you are a Romanian-born Sudanese political cartoonist, you often say you are from the Internet. What do you mean when you say you're from the Internet? It's, it's where I feel most free, right? Because uh, I was born in Romania. My father was a diplomat. I'm originally from Sudan. Uh, when, I was, when we went back to Sudan uh, in 1989, a coup happened. Before that, there was, there was just this brain drain of, 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 of uh, Sudanese intellectuals, doctors, engineers that left the country, really, because they, they, there was no space to work. You know, because the, 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 the coup that happened only wanted their people to work. So they only wanted one mentality to rule the country for so long. So basically when we ended up in, we ended up in, in Qatar, in Doha. And from there, we just, you know, the Internet was, was first starting. So we went through the evolution of the Internet, really, you know. And, and because I always wanted to do art. I always wanted to write. I always wanted to do all of these things. But um, there was no space to do it, you know. So when I graduated university... Uh, I graduated as, as, a, as, a, as an engineer because, you know, for us, you have to be an engineer. You can't be a doc, you know, you can't be an artist. You know, you have to be a doctor. You have to be an engineer because you have to have a title in front of your name. Otherwise, you're not going to get married. You know, <laughs> your father's going to have to say, oh, this is my son, engineer, so-and-so. Basically, the Internet gave me that, that space where, you know, I never worked for a newspaper before. So, I, you know, that's the only space that I had. And for me, it crosses borders, right? Because I've always watched news being told about Muslims or news being told about the region or the global south as a whole, uh, but not from our point of view. You know, it's like watching someone talk about you when you're there. Mm. You know, so for me, 
the internet gave me a chance to reach out to all of these people without without you know the use of media or traditional media. So you know, I just started you know with a, with with a blog and then with a Facebook page, which at the beginning just had a few of my friends, and then you know I started collaborating with a lot of people online, and and you know now I have like eighty thousand people or whatever on, on on my Facebook page. But so it's really where I feel that this is where I meet people. This is where people meet me. This is where we get to talk. I mean, uh, you know, after the Arab Spring, of course, it got a bit darker with, with the censorship, even online. But we still, you know, that's the only space that we have and we work on it. Can you talk a little bit just briefly about the Arab Spring? Because yeah. you, you talk a lot about how, in your own work, that was a moment, a pivotal moment for your work and for you. Can you talk a little bit about that for our listeners, those who may not know much about it? Absolutely. So, as I said, you know, with the censorship, basically the virtual world was the only space for creatives to go and for people that had, for everybody to go, really, just, you know, from our generation. And what that created was, was you know, because most of the Arab world and most of, you know, the global south is under 30 years old, really. You know, there's, there's a huge uh, amount of young, talent people that have no space on the political scene or in the work scene or whatever. So that's why a lot of people had to leave, you know. Mm-hmm. And if you can't, you know, and the other thing is, you, of course, you can't get visas to go anywhere because of the political situation. So a lot of people just die trying to cross the ocean to get to Europe, you know, try to get across the Mediterranean. Um, so what happened was that um, in the midst of all of that, a young man by the name of Mohamed Bazizi in Tunisia set himself on fire. And because he's a university graduate, couldn't find a job, and he was selling fruits. And he was selling fruits in front of a, of a police station in, in, in this town in Tunisia, and a policeman slapped him in front of everyone and confiscated his stuff. So he was so angry, he didn't know what to do. And, and he went home, he came back, and he set himself on fire in the same spot where, where he was, where he was uh, attacked by the police person. Uh, so in that year alone, apparently there was more than eight people that set themselves on fire, right, in protest against the police brutality and against just, you know, the system as a whole. So from there, that started this, this dynamo effect of, of, of revolutions that happened. And one of the first things that happened was Facebook pages asking for protest against the police and pro- protesting against the governments. So it started in Tunisia. People went down to the streets. It was, it was unbelievable because for 30 years, 40 years, uh, you know, the, the whole region was just stagnant. Nothing was happening. Status quo, you know, and everybody just wanted to keep these young people who are very energetic and unemployed and, you know, all of these situations, just keep them under their boots, right? So when that happened, it happened in Tunisia. The next week it happened in Egypt. People took down to the streets and all in Egypt it started from a Facebook page as well and it started from police brutality as well, mm-hmm. right? So because there is an, uh, a young man called uh, Khalid Saeed who was beaten by the, by the police, and police just denied that they did that. Mm-hmm. And then there was a, there was a page created by a, a good friend of mine whose name is Wael Ghanem, who actually used to work in, for Google and UAE. And he started a page called We Are All Khalid Saeed. And that page, in a week, it just had more than a million people. And all these people, what it ended up with, that people took to the street. Oh. And it kept happening. It went to Syria, it went to Yemen, it went to this. And, and during that time, all of us, like in the region, East Africa and North Africa and in the, in, the, in, the, in, in the Middle East as a whole, people united and young people united and in the one place that we had, which was the Internet. So all of us worked together, creatives, rappers, designers, writers, everyone was working together. And 
just it was like a Twitter revolution as well. Everybody was there, and we were, you know, tweeting to each other. If you're in, you know, in Sudan, or you're tweeting to people in Yemen, or we're tweeting, uh, you know, people in, in in Egypt about, you know, the police is coming this way, or this is happening, or this is happening. And we're, we're you know, I know friends like, uh, for instance, Sultan Qasmi. He's from Sharjah, from the UAE. He was translating tweets from from Tahrir Square, from Egypt, to the English media as well. So that grabbed a lot of attention. So all of us were doing the most that we can. All I did was do do cartoons. You know, so I kept keep doing cartoons, keep doing cartoons about what's happening, and most of my cartoons were, of course, you know, without without uh, no comment because I wanted it to get to the other side without being translated and so on, because this is you know the image grabs people the the most. So this is this is what happened, and it was a turning point for me because you know again it's just uniting with all of these issues that at the end are the same issues that we're still fighting for, and people are fighting for all over the world. Well, well I appreciate you providing that context. One. Because as I said earlier, like the discrimination, inequalities, see no boundaries. Absolutely. And as you talked about the police brutality and just the linkages, it reminds me of just how Black Lives Matter started here. The same things that you were mentioning, individuals not knowing how to respond, but yeah. coming together using the Internet. As you, as you know, color change, we work every day and we recognize the power of social media and see the digital campaigns and petitions as one of our greatest tools in holding accountable those decision makers and media, government, and corporations whose actions impact our lives every day. As a political cartoonist, in the illustrations in your book, Cartoon, you touch on a range of issues from the political climate here in this country to the current crisis unfolding in Sudan. Can you talk about your book and how you came to believe cartoons and political satire could be a tool to drive social justice and awareness? Cartoons were were the thing that I could do daily. You know, for me, for me, it's you know the the nice thing about a cartoon is that it's quick, you know, and it's and it's um, of course not at the beginning uh, when I was trying to to publish in newspapers. Uh, I took my work, I took my portfolio, and I went around to newspapers and I sent it to newspapers like in Doha, in Sudan, in Egypt, everywhere, and it was not accepted because you know there was like oh this is you know we can't publish this stuff because of censorship and so on. And, you know, one guy, one editor actually told me that, you know, I'm not funny. Mm. You know, I said, yeah, you know, the situation is not funny. I'm not trying to be funny. You know, I'm wow. trying to talk about what's happening. So, um, and of course, just having inspiration from Arab and 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 uh, uh, an African cartoonist talking about, uh, you know, how how they how they work around censorship, how they work around what's you know the, this this big brother looking at them all the time. So it was is they're very creative in in doing that because you know they worked before the internet and of course that you know a, a, the wrong cartoon or saying the wrong thing you could end up in jail right. So uh, from there I really respected cartoonists and what they do. And the other thing is that. It, it it's a good approach to people as well. So when I say I'm a cartoonist, everybody smiles. Instantly, everybody smiles. You know, even a, even a police person smiles. You know, so it's it's that's 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 a good approach, and that's what I want. I want people to listen. You know, without being intimidated by oh, this gonna you know this guy is a so much into policy, I'm not gonna understand what he's talking about or whatever. So it's a cartoon. You know, if you're an eight year old or if you're a professor, it's the same thing. So from there, I just you know started started working on it and everything. And and basically, the book is. Maybe these last eight years or nine years that I've that I've been working as a you know as a cartoonist. That's what I've been doing. Um, I as I said, you know, I don't work as a professional cartoonist. This is something that I just do, you know. And the art is just something that I just do. Uh, what's really funny is that I work in, in 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 museums, you know. And I remember when I first started drawing, I took the name Khalid Al Bay, which is Al Bay, which is what they call my family. 
Uh, but nobody at work at the museum knew that I that I draw cartoons. Wow. And until you know, one day uh, the the New York Times did an article about my work, and 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 my boss called me. He's like, "Is that you? Is that <laughs> how come we didn't know about this?" And uh, because again, because of, I was I was scared of the outcome. I didn't really know, you know. Wow. And I was trying to do the, like the whole Banksy thing, but that didn't work out at all. <laughs> but so the book is very basically a story of uh, these eight last years, you know, all, all the works that I've done put together in a way that it tells a story. The book is curated by uh, um, a cartoon uh, academic. Her name is uh, Louise Larsen. She's Danish. And she actually knew my work before I go to Denmark. You wow. know? And uh, she's an amazing supporter of cartoonists around the world. And she writes beautiful text. So when she suggested that we do a book together, I was like, yeah, absolutely. You know? And that's my first book because I actually never got out of the internet before. You know? mm. So uh, it, was, it was great working with her. And she told a beautiful story. And it's, it's, a visual, it's a visual book. I wanted to have more of my articles in there and, and my poetry, but they just wanted to keep it more visual as a, as a, as a start. All right, great. Well, what I'm really excited about is that on the screen behind us is one of my favorite illustrations that you've done, which is of Colin Kaepernick uh, with his famous afro that you've transformed into a black power fist. Mm -hmm. As you know, Color Change launched a campaign in support of Kaepernick and other athletes who were taking a stand against racial injustice here in this country. And I also know that Dave Chappelle, Chance the Rapper myself have your t-shirt i'm just really excited that the illustration is picked up i'm curious to know and i would love for you to talk about why kaepernick inspired you what was it about kaepernick and why are the issues that are affecting us here in this country of importance to you the civil rights movement is very important to the world as artists coming in from the arab spring for us the civil rights movement worked you know because we had obama at, at some point, right? So for me, that, that, you know, and we're sitting here right now. So like the Jim Crow laws, all of that. You know, I was, I was trying to study it. So uh, with my artist collective called Culture Runners, and we own an RV. And we took this RV and we took, a, we, we took a tour in the States just visiting and trying to study the locations of, of the civil rights movement, just different mm-hmm. locations around the world. So we were in New York here. We went to the Malcolm X Memorial. We went, we, we went to New Orleans. We went to uh, North Carolina. And we ended up in Tennessee, Doran Hotel, which is the Civil Rights Museum, which, you know, the Doran Hotel where Martin Luther King was assassinated. And we had an event there and a a gallery and everything and a show. So during that study, of course, I, you know, I came through the the photograph of of the athletes from 1968 Olympics with the the Black Fist. Mm. And for me, that was so powerful. And that tells you how sportsmen and everybody with power is very important to highlight their, their cases and their activism through that because that's the only way that they can do that you know and that happened recently as well in Ethiopia you know with the with the Amaro artists uh, with the Amaro athletes as well for me fast forward a year after that in 2000 I think 2016 when the whole story evolved about Colin Kaepernick for me that was a continuation of the civil rights movement so it's a continuation of that image of the black fist in the Olympics in 1968 this is a continuation of it we're still fighting that fight you know, so when I just blended the black fist with with the afro, that that's what I'm trying to say. And it's very important, again, to talk about the civil rights movement because we're all connected. You know, it doesn't matter if this rights movement happened in America or it happened in Brazil or it's happening in Sudan. We're all connected. Like like Martin Luther King said, is you know, it's injustice anywhere the threat to justice, right? So that's that's what I always would like 
people to understand through my work is that we are all connected. If democracy and civil rights movement are, are supported anywhere in the world, that gives me and my democracy and my civil rights struggle in Sudan a chance to succeed, mm-hmm. right? Because we have more allies. So for me, it's all, it's all one. We're fighting the same people at the end of the day. I appreciate that. And one of the things I want to turn to is that the fact that as a Muslim, as someone from Sudan who's been exiled, this idea of being both a refugee and immigrant in this country, as you also may know, color changes work closely with Define American, Mm -hmm. um, Blacks for a Just Immigration Policy, all these different groups we work with to really support the idea of what I see as the invisible of the invisible black immigrants in this country. We launched a campaign in partnership with them and others around 21 Savage recently. And so I'm just curious for you to speak a little about the crisis, you know, and the reason he was detained and the deportation issues around him was because he was speaking out about the crisis at our border currently with um, children who are being locked up to, as some describe in concentration camps Mm -hmm. um, and separate from their families in what ways have you tried to tackle the issue of immigration in your own work? Um, you know, can you talk a little bit about immigration in your own work? Of course. I mean, you know, growing up outside of my country most of my life, um, and, you know, for me, I was always interested in politics because politics for me was the reason why I didn't have a home. You know, my father left because of politics because he had to stand for something, right? And now I'm facing the same issue because I want to stand for something as well. So... Immigration, people on the move as a whole, you know, asylum seekers are a very important uh, subject to me because I'm I'm one of them. You know, it's actually selfish. Like I'm trying to I'm trying to talk about my issue as well through what's happening. You know, and living in Europe and being close to Europe, of course, is 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 you know that's a huge uh, issue over there. You know, it, it it took it took rights away from many people, and they call it you know uh, after Syria they call it a, a refugee crisis. Even though, you know, the, the amount of people that came in don't equal anything to the poor countries that are holding refugee camps like Kenya, like Iran, like, you know, L- uh, Lebanon, which is a tiny country that has l- millions of, of, of Syrian and Palestinian refugees, right? And, it's, it's the, and the way that it's always shaped, like, this story is always an issue about, like, like this is not natural. Like, we haven't been moving all our life, mm-hmm. you know? Who's here that was from here, you know? Very few people, Right? So everybody moves. It's, it's a natural thing to do. And that's what I'm trying to say. Everybody moves. And we need, we need to put ourselves in other people's shoes. That's, that's, that's very important to see, to look at in a different way. Because everybody looks at these things are, they're very distant. Mm. You know, Sudan is very distant. Police brutality is very, very distant. Refu- being a refugee is very distant. But it's really not, you know. At the, at the end, we all were people on the move at some point. You know, so for me, I'm trying to humanize that, you know, because, you know, living in Europe again, it's, it's always, you know, always here, uh, you know, a boat capitated with, with, with 200 people. And that's it. 200 people died. We don't know who these people are. Right? They just died. Right. So it's, it's, it's it, after, after you hear these numbers a lot of times, you just dehumanize these numbers. They become numbers, basically, at the end of the day. And this is what we're trying to do. There's a lot of projects to putting, putting faces and names onto these numbers, you know. And I'm, I'm working with these projects in, in a lot of ways. So I have a project in Doha called 
Doha Fashion Fridays, which basically works with migrant workers, which are mostly from uh, Southeast Asia, that come to, to Doha, to Qatar, to build you know, the, the, the country, right? And the stadiums and so on. But it's, it's because there's, there's, Doha is a very tiny country, and there's millions, like literally millions of them. If the, if the population is 4 million, I think the, the, the working uh, guests are, I think they're like a million or something, you know? Mm-hmm. And they live in camps, literally camps outside of the city, because most of them are young men. And they can't come into this city in, unless in, in certain times. So they hang out next to, next to where I w- used to work, the museum. And um, I was working one day with a friend of mine. And one of, one of, one of the, the migrant workers was actually working like, wearing a, a Tupac T-shirt, right? <laughs> and he's from Nepal. I was like, oh, man, that's amazing. Look at this guy's wearing a Tupac T-shirt. Where do you think he's got it from? And my friend just laughed. Like, he doesn't even see this guy, you know? And I was very upset. I was like, you know, and this is an educated man. I was like, why, why are you? And it's just, this is all about that. It's like not seeing the problem. So I, I, for like a year, I was thinking, like, okay, how can I work on this? And, and then I came up with this idea called Doha Fashion Fridays. Because Fridays, it's like, it's like Sunday here, right? So everybody's out. And the workers get to go to the Kuruniche. This is the only place that they get to go. So they go to the Kuruniche and they're all dressed up, right? The, the young girls, the men. And this is, their, this is where they meet, you know? So what I tried to do is do this project, which is basically... Uh, a cross between like humans of New York and a fashion blog, right? Wow. So, and I wanted everybody to do it. So I wanted people to come down and talk to talk to migrant workers and and know their stories and ask them if they like fashion and so on. Of course, it was you know not a lot of people did it. So I, I ended up doing it with with a friend of mine, Aparna, who's who's actually an Indian photographer. She's amazing, and she's still she still carries on that project. And it's all about humanizing them and knowing their stories and knowing what's happening. And the same thing is for refugees, right? Because at the end of the day, you know, I'm a six foot six guy, right? Sometimes people don't see me. Mm. And it's very obvious that they're, they're, they're nervous. You know, they don't know how to deal with me, right? So it's, it's, it's about, you know, taking a step further and making people see us, like as refugees, see us as, 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 as you know, as, as people on the move and migrant workers and so on. So it's, uh, my cartoons do a lot with that and even my other projects as well. One of the images, because um, I know you just opened a new show here in New York. Yeah. Uh, one of the images that stood out based on what you were saying was the one of the Syrian children and the one where the child's laid out, yeah. um, drowned, yeah. basically, and, and reflects back. As, and what I appreciate is like the sheer struggle that you're pointing to is the recent um, death of the father and daughter at the border here yeah. um, who drowned. Like that same image sticks to me. So. One of the things is at the heart of all that you're doing and just everything is fighting authoritarianism. Um, and what advice do you have for us, the listeners, the podcast, um, our members at Color Change, for those of us who feel like this country under a Trump administration is moving closer towards authoritarianism, what advice do you have for us? My advice is to listen to international news, right, and try to get news sources from citizen journalists all across the world. When I, when I was talking about that we're fighting the same people, we're actually fighting the same people. I'm from Sudan. Uh, we're asking for a civilian government. We now have the army. The army is backed by Saudi. Saudi is backed by Trump. Whatever the Saudis do, they're not accountable because they're backed by Trump. Right? So whatever happens in the States actually affects me and my mother and my father in Sudan. Right? So when you're fighting against someone that wants an authoritarian regime here and supports uh, dictators around the world, whether from North Korea to India to Philippines or to, to, to Saudi, 
you're you're not fighting only for America. You're fighting for us as well, mm. right? So this is this is this is this is again. It's about communicating between us, talking between us as people, talking as citizen journalists, talking as as activists. And every, I think each one of us has something to give. And it's all about you know talk talk to your local politicians. Talk about you know, this is very important. It's not about you. And about you know like how uh, you know traffic is or what what can you fix the city? It's it's bigger than that. You know, it's, there's 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 a lot of things happening and it's all connected. Great. I want to go. I want to move towards as we get close to the end of the conversation to a lighter note. Mm-hmm. Um, I want <laughs> I want to I want to talk a little bit about your new project, mm-hmm. Fada. Yeah. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that project and and what you're trying to institute? This build what it sounds like is you're a community builder. Yes. Um, the community you're trying to build for artists. Uh, Fada was I'm a, I'm a Soros Art Fellow. Um, uh, Fada was built with the help of Open Society Foundation, which was incredible support to me as you know someone who works in uh, very deeply in politics and very involved in politics which is really hard to find support because most people you know they want to work on just like on the surface stuff they don't want to touch with the, the real subjects most of you know the people that I've come across um, so open society foundation really helped me a lot in, in in putting this project together so fada is about it's a platform for everyone right it's for the community and it's all about offering your space or offering yourself. So we believe in Fada that everyone has something to give, right? So if you would like to donate a space, this space could be, uh, you know, your father's library, it could be a garage, it could be a room, it could be a lamp hole, it could be a space in a park, whatever it is. You can donate this space and you can do it in three different ways. You can say, this is an open space and you take a picture of it and you put your code of conduct, do this, don't do that. And then you say, anybody can come here at any time, do whatever they want. Right? Mm-hmm. This is an open space. This is a safe space for you to come and do whatever you want. And then the other, the other part of it is that you basically say, I have these two days a week that I don't use my, my guitar or I don't use my camera or you can come use my studio here. Right? You can donate the studio and you say, okay, every weekend from 6 to 8, the studio is free. Let me know what you're doing and I'll, I'll, I'll give you the space. So we put you in touch with other people as well. And then the other part is that you invite, it's like, oh, I like Khalid's work. I have, a, I have a comics library. I know Khalid loves comics. So, you know, Khalid, you're welcome to come here at this time. So it's basically giving you a chance to donate, to give space, right, to give fadas on your preferences, right, mm-hmm. when, what makes you comfortable with giving, right? So it gives you a chance to be an art patron. It gives you a chance to be an art curator. It gives you a chance to have your own residency, really, you know. And this, can, this is, could be as big as you want and it could be as small as you want. You know, it could be literally a desk, that's in your house and you can say you can art, ask artists to come and do something or it could be a room meeting room and you can give it to whoever you want and if we have spaces for long enough we would you know we would love to do something around the community so we have a, a community based in every city hopefully and then they will do something so if, if this space needs to be a, a, a refugee camp it's a refugee camp right it's, in, it's a shelter it's a shelter it's a, it's a screening place it's a screening place and that's and that's that's basically about putting people in touch putting people together and working together again connecting people working together because we're fighting the same thing you know we want to make each other better right so we can move forward without you know big brother without 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 authoritarian regimes telling us we're different you know and we can't help each other because of these borders or because of our colors or because of, you know. So we need to bypass them and do that on our own. 
That's amazing. It sounds like the Airbnb for artists. But Basically, you're not making no money. <laughs> no, it's a it's a it's a free initiative. It's a free initiative, and it's for everyone to to to, to use and try out. And and it's you know I think of it more as a Wikipedia because we built. Mm. You know, it's not it's it's not about it's not about money. This is about the person with a space and the person who wants to use that space building something together we're all partners in building this so for me it's 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 about togetherness it's about building it's about offering what you can because you know in in our in our culture our doors are always open you know in sudan i have at least 10 people in my house that i don't even know who they are you know they're there all the time they're friends of my cousin friends of my uncle friends of someone. everybody eats together everybody in ramadan we actually eat outside in the street the whole neighborhood is in the street you know, if somebody has a wedding, your door is open to them so people can come and stay over, you know. So it's, this is, I'm taking, I'm trying to take our culture, something that we're so proud of, outside. Make it into, you know, a Western con- context so we could, you know, everybody could work with it. But it's, it's really, a, it's a cultural thing. And I think it's beautiful. I know I don't want us to lose it, you know. So I'm really exporting our culture to the world, you know. I, I want to ask another question, mm-hmm. which is, um, I love comics. Yeah. I'm a Marvel head, some DC. I'm DC, man. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, um, but I'm not a good illustrator. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll be lucky to get me to draw a stick figure. <laughs> uh, but I'm curious, like, what's, well, who's your greatest inspiration as a, as a cartoonist or artist? Like, where, what, where did you draw your, your most um, inspiration from when you were younger? You know, when, when I was a kid, uh, we had translated comics, mm. right, in Sudan. So we had all these, the, all these DC and Marvel and everything. It was, it was translated into Arabic by different, you know, uh, companies. So you have the Lebanese, you have the, the, the Egyptians, and you have the Iraqis and everything. So, like, yeah. for example, the Iraqi Superman had a mustache. You know, really? and Wonder Woman because of her dress, she was a, she was a guy. She wasn't she was she wasn't Wonder Woman. So it was it was that wow. that was that was incredible to me. Because, but the whole idea of being connected to this this imaginary world that has no black people whatsoever, and it's all the, everybody is so des- distant distant from me. You know, it's nothing that has to do with my life whatsoever. So we had local comic book artists doing a few things, but. In the region as a whole, everything was very, very propaganda-ish, even comics, you know? So everything was about, like, oh, the Israeli spy or the whatever, you know? So um, when I discovered comics, when I discovered c- political cartoons, that, that kind of merged both, both worlds for me. So I had the comics, I had the illustration, I had the art, but I also had the politics, you know? So uh, I, I discovered this, uh, this, uh, this newspaper, two magazines, actually, that my father started buying or I just discovered them or something and they're called Sabah al-Khair which means good morning and the other one is called Rosal Yusuf which is the name of the of the founder and it's and it's basically like the Arab New Yorker you know it's based on political cartoons and so on and for me that was just mind-blowing you know I was like oh my god I could actually do this it's both it's both things and wow. I just copied and copied and copied and then I discovered this artist called Najil Ali who was a Palestinian cartoonist who was assassinated in London in the in the 80s and nobody knows who killed him. Was it the, the Palestinians or the, the Israelis? Because both of them hated him for telling the truth, wow. right? And for me, that was so powerful. Like, for me to, to be a journalist, you have to be as independent as that. He knew he was going to die, you know? But he's, he kept on doing it. And his style is very black and white, 
very simple, uses a very few words, which is exactly what I do today. You know, so I said basically I copied him until I, I kind of made my own out of him. But he does great work. He's an activist. He's a writer. He's a cartoonist. And Alert Hamian, he's a he's a, an amazing character, definitely. Did you get swept up by Black Panther? Oh, of course, of course, of course. That was amazing. And the idea that Africa could be this advanced and you know, it was it was uh, one day. Yes. <laughs> well, it is advanced, but one day we'll Inshallah, have Wakanda. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, we always end our podcast by asking our guests on the t- hashtag Tell Black Stories podcast this final question: What is one story that has not been told about your community? that you would love to see Hollywood put on the big screen. Wow. So Sudan is used to be one of the biggest countries in Africa. Of course the borders are made up by the British, you know. So they just brought like they made it this this plan and they said, Oh there you go, that's Sudan, all of you live here. But the unification of the tribes that used to live there, the Nubian tribes or the Arab tribes or, you know, the African tribes, everybody was there. And of course we have one of the oldest pyramids in the world. And we have more pyramids than anywhere else in the world, right? So this is a fact that nobody knows of. Wow, right? I didn't know that. Yes, we have more pyramids than anywhere else in the world. Wow. And possibly the oldest as well. And we have more ethnic groups in Sudan, right? We have most of the, like all the ethnic groups in Africa are actually in Sudan, you know? So anybody in this room can be Sudanese right now. You know, and it's incredibly diverse and it's beautiful. It's a beautiful place. I mean, it's a place where the Nile actually unifies and becomes the Nile and goes up to Egypt, right? So there's a lot of stories. Like, you know, if you know where Moses was born, he was born, uh, in the, you know, in, in, in south of Egypt and was thrown in the River Nile for three days and ended up in Valley of the Kings, right? So if you look at that, then he was born actually in Sudan, where Nubia is, right? So Nubia is, 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 is a great culture, the, the African religions, of course, and then, then we had Judaism, and then Christianity, and then later on they became Muslim. But the Muslims didn't come in through war, they came in through trade, mm. you know, because the, the archers, the, the Nubian archers, were so good, like in Arabic you call them the Rumat al-Hadaq, which means like the, the, the eyeball. Mm. So they put the arch you into your eye. So the Muslims really couldn't go in, they couldn't further go in through war. So they just went in through trade and, and so on after 200 years. And if you watch the, the, the movie 300, all the archers were black. So all the archers were Nubian. They were, this was their main thing. Wow. You know? So again, you know, the, the Nubian culture, we had women queens. And that's where, the, that's where the term Nubian queen comes from. Right? So the Nubian queens were called Kandakas. And that's mentioned in the Bible. And that's actually the name Candace. Wow. Right? So the name Candace is actually Kandaka, which means Nubian queen. So there's a lot of stories, man. I can go on. <laughs> and it's undiscovered, and nobody knows anything about it. And sadly, even Sudanese people don't know anything about it. And I'm, I'm doing actually this book right now. I've, I've worked with uh, 30 artists, illustrators, writers, even a cook, you know, to put together this book that talks about the oral history of Sudan, because this is how we keep our history. It's the oral history, you know, to just talk about any story that affected them and then build on that, right? So the story could be true or not true, but it's all about the history. It's based on facts, right? And the book is called Sudan Retold. And this is really what we want to do now with this uprising. We want to retell our stories. We want the world to know about us, you know? Not as these, these, these geographical borders that were made up, but by the people. Well, hopefully we can help. Thank you so much. This is helping and, right now. And bring it to life. Khaled, thank you for joining us. Thank um, you for having me. It's been a great conversation. Uh, can you tell us where people can follow your work? 
I'm all over. I live online, man. So <laughs> it's just, you know, my name is Khalid Al Bay, and I'm on, you know, I'm on Instagram, I'm on Facebook, I'm on the, whatever you want, you know. So just support Sudan Uprising to get the, the, the quest for Sudanese to get a civil government. Because at the end, that's what we're asking for, you know. This is what Kaepernick asked for, this is what the civil rights asked for, and this is what we're asking for in Sudan, just to stay civil. Thank you so much. Thank you again to our listeners. You can find more of the hashtag Tell Black Stories podcast wherever you stream your podcast.